Hello, and welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarik. And I'm Greg Lindsay, and we're back with a guest this week, uh, is my good friend, Brian Boyer, who is the director of the Urban Technology Program, the University of Michigan Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning. Uh, it's a pleasure to have Brian on because half of the things that we've talked about on past episodes of Unfrozen were incepted by Brian in me at various points, uh, including thoughts on ghost kitchens and brute force architecture and other stuff. So we're going to have Brian on in just a second here to talk about uh, the urban tech program that he's put together at Michigan. But first, I uh, would like to acknowledge that this is the first episode of Unfrozen that we've recorded since, of course, the unprecedented and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by Russia uh, and the, well, both the, you know, tragedy, of course, of the war itself and also the incredible reaction by the world in isolating Russia. Um, I have two thoughts on this and I'll pass around the horn here. I was in London this past week where, of course, the war felt even more vivid than it does here back on the Montreal side of the Atlantic. And uh, I was there with my nine-year-old in spring break. And at one point he asked, who are we cheering for, Dad, Ukraine or Russia? which my initial reaction was, no one is cheering for Russia, Teddy, not even the Russians. And my second one is that we're not cheering for either. We're cheering for peace and hopefully the end of this. But uh, gentlemen, I'll, I'll invite you if you have any particular thoughts to add on this. But uh, I would note here, and we'll get into this in a second, that uh, that this event is also finally provoked architecture firms to pull out from dubious clients. So we'll discuss those impacts momentarily. But but Brian, first, wel welcome, welcome onto the podcast and particularly at such a somber moment in time. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it, it is a difficult moment um, on the international stage, but uh, hopefully we can find some other stuff to focus on for a little while. We will certainly have bad jokes and laughing at renderings very shortly, I promise. But but, but Dan, back, back over to you. So who, who has pulled out of Ukraine, or sorry, pulled out of Russia in this, I would say? There have been finally some high-profile statements from global star architecture firms who finally found a client that they will not work for. Who, who has suddenly grown a conscious, Dan? Uh, yes, none other than Zaha Hadid Architects, uh, home to not only the late Zaha Hadid, who had attracted some... Um, some shade for working for the Qataris, but uh, more famously and recently, Patrick Schumacher, who is the world's most famous libertarian architect, who seems like he would work for anybody up to this point. And then um, MDRDV, which is uh, the Dutch design firm that is growing out of uh, the Y factory in TU uh, Delft in uh, Netherlands. And I believe there are at least one other that has announced publicly that they're uh, shying away from Russia, and there's probably a lot of others that are just quietly creeping away without trying to make too much noise. So it, it, it's quite something considering all the you know blowback that architecture firms have gotten for working in all kinds of um, authoritarian or dictatorship uh, regimes. This seems to have finally broken the, the, the wall, if you will. Well, well, two things in those, and I want to hear from Brian, because Brian, of course, also among his many, many accomplishments, I should have noted he is, of course, a co-founder of Dash Marshall, a design firm, and helped create the Helsinki Design Lab. So Brian has been a neighbor of the Russians for a while there. Um, and, you know, MVRDV also just published a sort of interesting mea culpa about their involvement in the Marble Arch fiasco in London, um, sort of criticizing their client how they, and admitting they should never really have participated in that. And also Zaha Hadid is owned by its staff. Uh, Schumacher is, of course, the the, the 
the the front man and the, yeah, the libertarian in chief there. But it was her her dying wish, I understand, to have the have the firm owned by its employees. So I wonder if behind the scenes that was some sort of act of solidarity there. But I don't know, Brian, your your thoughts on this, uh, having having operated in Finland and also, you know, I mean, you you we'll we'll get to your uh, brute force architecture and its discontents essay about sort of modern architectural practice. But you know, are you surprised by this? Uh, surprised by architecture firms pulling out of Russia? I mean, in this context... Yeah, there's a line they, they finally could cross, a line they could not cross. That's really remarkable. In this context, uh, it's perhaps cynical of me, but a little hard to gauge whether it's really a moral stand or if it's also realizing that you're just not going to get paid for any work that you're doing. So why not pull out? Well, it did It did strike me that that was the case here. I mean, it, it's fascinating, by the way, that only two firms have put out public statements, at least that we know of, perhaps this third uh, as well, when, you know, when you're seeing auto companies pull out, when I think, you know, as, as, as Mr. Aerotropolis on this podcast, it's been fascinating to watch them just unplug Aeroflot from the global aviation system and, and airspace band. I mean, you know, watching the weaponization of airspace all over again reminds me of this. But but it is, it is, a, it is an interesting contrast between this, of course, and the last global pariah we had on the geopolitical stage, of course, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia after the Jamal Khashoggi assassination. And it's interesting because as we record this several hours ago, uh, we saw the latest renderings of Neom come out, Neom Trojina, which is, I guess, going to revolutionize mountain tourism, as they put it. And it shows all sorts of delightfully swoopy architectural forms designed by someone. We don't know who, but but it is interesting to see that there are still firms that will work there. But Russia is is a bridge too far, perhaps because you're right, because <laughs> being taken off the swift, uh, uh, the swift banking system means you're never actually going to get those fees. So um, it will be interesting to see where that goes. But all right, well, well, moving on from that then, because of course, sadly, the war continues and uh, we'll have more of that to discuss in future episodes. But, but Brian, I want to have you on to talk about what is urban tech? Because of course, you know, again, among other things you've worked on, you are a consultant for Sidewalk Labs, you were at the Helsinki Design Lab with Dan Hill and and uh, and Citra, uh, uh, of course, uh, in, in Finland as well. Tell us about the, pro- the program and how you're putting it together and your, th- your sort of thoughts on, you know, what smart cities are 10 years in. We've talked about this in the past on ghost kitchens and dark stores, and I think we'll come back to that. But I'm curious to hear your take, you know, at this point of like, how do we actually inculculate in a new generation of design students how to handle technology and, and to not have it be this other thing, but as something that is really native to them. So I, I feel free to take it where it is there, but this is this is your chance to, to, to talk to our listeners here about, you know, who you're looking for to, as, a, as fellow travelers to help you uh, teach this to a new generation of students. Yeah, well, exactly as you're suggesting, I think the challenge is we've been living in a digital world for how many decades now, and we still somehow treat the digital and the physical as separate realms. And so the goal of the urban technology program at Taubman College is to create a generation of designers who don't see the distinction. You know, when I was at Sidewalk Labs, the CEO, Dan Doktoroff, would talk a lot about bridging the divide between the urbanists and the technologists. And that's fine, but I'd rather have people who just don't see a divide there, uh, because certainly the everyday experience of the city, um, both of those perspectives, the digital and the physical, are completely intertwined for many of us. So the program mixes a perspective on cities, how do cities work, uh, both as the hardware systems and also the decision-making structures, institutions, processes, et cetera. The second part is having some technical ability. And so all of our students will learn how to code. Um, That doesn't mean they're going to go be engineers, but it means that they'll be able to advocate for humans in technical conversations. And then the third part is design. And the question really is, what kind of design are we talking about? Is this 
architecture with more computers or urban planning with more GIS. And it's neither of those. Uh, what we've come to is a realization that there's a growing opportunity for products and services in the built environment that have you know, as much impact on urban outcomes as bricks and mortar do. So one of the hopes in a basic sense is that the next person who goes off to create a company like uh, Uber or Lyft or Airbnb that has some kind of impact in urban life around the world, that it's built by a person who actually understands cities uh, rather than somebody who has perhaps an animosity or at least an ambivalence towards them. Interesting. Well, I mean, how's that sort of tie back to your past work? I mean, with uh, with with uh, Citra and others, and I'm sort of curious, like, you know, what your thoughts on how that could evolve? I mean, one of my favorite projects of yours, uh, theoretical, uh, was Brickstarter back in the day, which of course was published as a booklet, imagining not just you know Kickstarter for urbanism, which was a popular idea. What I don't know, 2013, 2014, the idea of sort of crowdfunding public goods, but you know, you and 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 Dan Hill and your other team members sort of also imagine like how to basically intervene in processes. That's what I always thought of was interesting. It's like, how, how do you sort of hack the, the the public procurement process and think about these sort of larger systems as well? And I'm curious, is, is that something you want to tackle as well? Like the, the policy side of this or, you know, w- yeah. What, what roles do you imagine your graduates having or like what, what kind of, what, what kind of leaders would you like them to be when they grow up someday? Sure. I mean, one of the fun things about the degree program is that it's at the undergraduate level. which means that we're going to have a a wide variety of graduates going off to do many different things. You know, it doesn't have to be as, say, one-to-one match to a career trajectory as a master's degree would typically be. And so we expect that a good number of our students will go off and be product designers or they'll do service design. And, you know, those are the kinds of folks who could end up at a consulting design firm, uh, you know, be it the Arabs or uh the places like Woods Bagot that has an innovation studio or other um, design firms like that. We think there'll be another category that go off and do research. Some of them perhaps more on the qualitative design research side of things, others more in a quantitative realm. Um, another group will probably be inclined towards operations. And so I would expect that in that category, we'll see some entrepreneurs We'll see some folks who are joining startups uh, or perhaps joining public sector, right? Whether they're uh, becoming part of a political campaign or an advocacy organization or something along those lines. But, you know, that kind of uh, capable young person that shows up in all sorts of different types of organizations. And then the final category is a more technical path. And some of our students um, will graduate, frankly, with a relatively, um, you know, baseline level of technical capability. And, and that's just fine. Cause again, the goal is to have a kind of legibility or, or understanding of, of the way that technology works, but for others who are really inclined, uh, and they pursue it in their studies, I think we'll see some folks who join engineering teams or work as a creative technologist, or perhaps as a data scientist. And one of the things that's been also fun about shaping the, the degree is like, how do you support this variety of different pathways without uh, totally overburdening us just in terms of trying to run a program, right? And so being at the University of Michigan, we have amazing strength in many of those areas that I just mentioned. So the students in our program are actually required to take a minor uh, somewhere else on campus. 
So some of our students will graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Urban Technology and a minor in Economics, or a minor in Political Science, or a minor in Electrical Engineering, or Art and Design, et cetera. And so that's something we're really excited about seeing is um, kind of what combinations come up through that process and, of course, where they go afterwards. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm looking at this from two perspectives in my own experience. You know, I, I had an undergraduate in journalism from Northwestern and a graduate degree at, at, uh, from uh, University of Oregon in architecture. And, you know, one the, there's a similarity there between the program you're running in the architecture, uh, well, let's just say the urbanism-related world and the journalism program that I was a member of, which required students to really take an interdisciplinary approach. That seems to be something that a lot of architecture schools don't do, uh, or at least don't do well, because everyone's so fixated on, you know, creating the perfect rendering and or getting their um, NCARB credits. And I, I was going to ask, do, does this program uh, certify the students or, or get them on the path to licensure, or is that really not an objective? No, so it's not architectural at all in nature. And, you know, this has been one of the things that uh, has taken some, some kind of uh, iteration to really figure out when we say they learn how to design, what exactly are they designing? And ultimately, we're interested in digital products and services. And that means that they'll spend some time designing interfaces. They'll be thinking about the, uh, the financial model behind that service, right? So again, whether that's a uh, private sector proposal for some new mobility solution, or it's looking at public sector uh, services like application for benefits um, or voting or you know, kind of other core public sector services, um, all of those things have to work well for the end user and they have to work well at a systems level. And so what we're trying to do is combine some of the best methods and perspectives from human-centered design, which is really great at making things that are appropriate for individuals, with what architecture tends to be quite good at is thinking and working with systems in a very pragmatic way. And so we need to create a red thread that connects both ends of that scale rather than kind of continuing to let them exist as separate universes. I, I want to jump in there because like, is architecture actually good at, at systems thinking? I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not the architect on this podcast, but, but in my, in my chances to, to attend final reviews at, you know, Harvard GSD and others, I, I always find that, that, yeah, that basically they're, you know, inevitably the students have been warped by faculty that want to talk about form and shape and, you know, and not get into this. And it always struck me that architects should be, and I'm sure, I know we've talked about this in past podcasts here, that like, that architecture should be the domain where like, like the global systems are made flesh, right? Like the physical forms. And that's what I like about your program is you're actually trying to bring that digital design element into it. But like, are architects good at this? And, and I guess my question here is like, how's it going with the hunt for faculty for this? Because like, yeah, again, obviously like traditional architecture faculty is not perhaps, um, it's not perhaps best suited to this. So I am curious, like who, who are you reaching out to for, for co-conspirators? You know, let me answer your other question first. I think architecture school can be a really great place to learn about how systems come together and how they land in the material world. And it should be. They absolutely should be. Yes. Well, it, it often is. It, it's just also other things, right? So architecture school can also be a place where you obsess about, 
you know, disciplinary issues of form, for instance. And those are less relevant when you're sitting in a room with an economist uh, or a politician or, um, you know, somebody who's a user of public services and, and depends on those public services. Uh, so there's certainly a, a level of um, hubris that exists in the architectural world, as we all know. And there's been a turn in the architecture uh, academy in, I don't know what timeline, but let's just say recent years to be more cognizant of social impact, right? The, the impact that the work that we do has on communities. But the way that that gets expressed in the academy is often as architects trying to design buildings for communities who are marginalized or excluded when the the basis or the nature of that marginalization or exclusion uh, isn't architectural in nature, right? It, it stems from policy decisions. And so one of the things that we want to do with this new program is to shift the balance from what I'd call a focus on issues of craft, which is uh, inherent to most design programs, frankly, uh, to more of a focus on issues of consequence. So while, yes, uh, it's important to know how something's made and how it looks, I think in 2022 and going forward, and especially if you really have a kind of um, sense of some larger moral purpose, then it's more important for us to understand why are we doing the things that we are? Like, why is this a good proposition? And if this proposition is good and we do it, what impact will it create in the world? Uh, intentionally and unintentionally. And so those conversations are more multidisciplinary and they're frankly more about, or they lean more on the designer's ability, I think, to synthesize uh, complex topics and communicate those ideas rather than make pretty pictures or the kinds of things that often get um, kind of headlined as the designer's traits. Okay, so what so what outputs do you have in mind then for the for the actual program in terms of um, you know what what you'll do for studios and others? And so this is my point to mention, you know that um, that you know I had the pleasure of working with you and our mutual friend Anthony Townsend on a project the two of you did for the Bloomberg Philanthropies and National League of Cities, imagining future scenarios of autonomous vehicles. That was a lot of fun. Uh, you and Anthony also teamed again on a great project for the Mindrew Foundation, I believe, working with Bianca Wiley on like the most important mile, thinking through delivery services, which I want to come back to and we've talked about in the past. I mean, so so yeah, what, what do you imagine is sort of like what the outputs are going to be? I mean, are you guys going to be doing scenarios? You're going to be designing services or sketching them out and, and wireframing them? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, what what, what do you imagine as sort of um, projects you'll take on and, and, and sites and programs? So the top of the bell curve in terms of what they'll be focusing on would be services. Uh, again, mm -hmm. that might be thinking about mobility across an urban environment or local decision making or neighborhood scale energy uh, production and um, transmission and, and retention, um, et cetera, right? So there's, if you basically think about any core service for city life, that's game for us. How do we rethink that? Uh, then the question is, how do you also communicate that in a way that's meaningful? And so that's where the scenario-based work that you're mentioning, Greg, is, is important to us because it's a way of talking about, yes, like, okay, what is the new solar infrastructure and where are the batteries and how do we connect that stuff and how do we make decisions about it and who does it serve and who does it not serve, yada, yada. Um, but 
really, again, we're interested in what that means in terms of the changes for everyday life and everyday experience. And scenarios are a way to, to bring that um, to people in a way that's more digestible or, or more um, more interable, <laughs> if that's a word, easier to enter as a discussion. So are you hoping to then maybe draw people from prior experience in this perhaps in teaching in schools of public policy or government, uh, as well as, you know, urban planning and technology? Yeah. So on the point about teaching, we'll have uh, basically right now, as we're starting the recruiting for additional faculty, you know, we're getting people who've come through architecture or planning and uh, kind of found, you know, technical, um, a technical focus as something that they've layered on top of their work, right? So that might be somebody who's really deep into GIS or spatial analytics. That might be somebody who's into just interaction design and and product design. Uh, But there's kind of a growing, I think, sliver of the architecture built environment universe more broadly where where people get this. Um, Like for instance, the Architechies group on Slack is a great source of folks who are very excited about their love and care for the built environment, but exploring how they can use other forms of agency or other tools to express that love and care. Uh, The flip side is also true. So there are people who come more from the digital world, be it information architecture, interaction design, service design, et cetera, who increasingly find themselves interested in uh, spatial or urban issues. And so for instance, in a recent piece on Medium, um, I quoted Ron Bronson, who works at 18F in the federal government, um, as an example of somebody who kind of comes at it from that perspective of, you know, really, um, he actually uses the words consequence design, which was a total, um, uh, a great coincidence when I discovered that. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I have to get on the phone with this guy. And then I did, and we had a really great conversation. Um, so, you know, the designers are kind of, uh, hopeful monsters or strange creatures. Um, they're people who've you know, made their own CV or their own career interdisciplinary. And then, you know, to your question, uh, Dan, we have to also make sure that we know what we don't know and that we bring in other people for that. So again, one of the strengths of doing this at a place like Michigan is that we have real depth in the school of policy, school of law, business, et cetera. And so what we're looking at is how the studios can be run, not just with some guest speakers from those places, but with faculty members from those other units on campus as part of the instruction team for the studio courses. Uh, so that's amazing. I would say that if, if those of you who are listening, and Dan will tell me what, you know, for the 57th most popular podcast in Sweden still uh, is for, for listeners is basically if you're if you're liking what you're hearing from Brian, reach out because I know he's been out there recruiting faculty and and, and yeah, as you were talking, Brian, I was thinking of like the handful of like incredibly interesting intersectional people there that I was thinking it would be perfect. This Dan Hahn would be I imagine it would be a dream faculty for this, and, and our mutual friend Gabriela Gomez Mont would be great for this too. So I hope you're able to get some like rotating rotating crew through there from like global practitioners because it strikes me as like you need people who are so close to the metal on this kind of thing. So, Yeah, well, it's exactly. So actually, Gabriella, we have the benefit of having her on an advisory board for the program. And you're right, Dan would be an amazing person to teach in this program. Um, 
we're organizing it so that we'll have we we do and will have some core faculty and we'll have some opportunities for people to come in and teach uh, either for a whole semester or for a shorter format. And the intention there is to make it really possible for practitioners. Um, you know, it's very hard, for, I think, for a lot of folks to commit to a 15 week every week kind of experience, but seven weeks or three weeks or something like that makes it more possible. And that's a, a way of us making sure that we can kind of keep a connection to practice because frankly, I, I think things are changing so quickly in practice that we we have to have that connection if we want to kind of maintain, a, a, I guess, relevance. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, all right. Well, let's 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 choose this moment here to to, to segue out of your work at Michigan and talk a bit about uh, uh, you know before you launched the program, you had a great series of newsletters and and media posts as you mentioned here explaining the aims and the outlines and and one of yours I really seized upon, uh, which was your breakdown of ghost kitchens, particularly of reef technology. And again, <laughs> for those for those few in the proud who've listened to all of our episodes, you know that we had uh, my friend Lev Kushner on a while back to talk about the essay that he and I wrote about dark stores and thinking this through. And, the, and I bring this up, Ryan, because the, the, the breakthrough I've had, and it's probably very prosaic to you, is like is that the entire like conception of smart cities from over a decade ago when it was IBM and Cisco and all the big companies that like, and, and sidewalk labs, you know, uh, for example, it struck me that perhaps uh, the smart city era started with Songdo, South Korea, which was like a, a Cisco creation and sort of ends with the dream of sidewalk Toronto in the sense of that the smart city, quote unquote, would be like prestige real estate with technological features added to increase the premium anymore. And instead what's happened, starting with Uber, and again, around the same time period, almost a decade ago or over a decade ago, is instead there's been these sort of like verticalized services, Uber, DoorDash, Reef, and others that are combining software and hardware to basically take marginal assets in cities and like frack them for all that they're worth. Um, I would refer listeners back to the episode we had with Lev to get more deeper into this. But your breakdown of Reef, of Reef Technology is one that's really struck with me because you were the one that pointed out that they're not actually doing, and, and for those of you listening, Reef is the one that's basically acquired 4,500 parking lots around the United States. In many cases, the wrong parking lots are what they want to do, which is a whole other story. But they've built their own kind of what have been described as food trucks or shipping containers, which is not really the point, but they've deployed them to these parking spaces. And Brian was the one who published this great teardown where you realize they were basically creating minimum viable buildings as a way to arbitrage the various regulation around parking lots. And I'll, I'll stop there because Brian can explain it better than me. But I, I'm curious how that feeds into your conception of this, that like we basically were looking, it feels like, at the wrong thing, that while we were staring at the smart city, quote unquote, it was really about using all these technological capabilities to, yeah, to basically harness these marginal spaces in cities and try to basically platformize them. If that's a verb I can use. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop there. But I, I'd love you to expand upon those thoughts because that, that strikes me as like that—that's really where that entire trajectory went. Like the smart city got turned inside out while we were focused on the wrong kind. Well, I, I think you're pointing at the idea of kind of smart city was always uh, a way of describing either a city or a neighborhood or a district as a product, essentially. And that seems to have uh, stumbled, if not failed. And yet what we are seeing is a really um, focused effort on rethinking essentially supply chains, right? And so particularly in the built environment, stuff is so fractured that it's very hard to innovate. So I don't think it's a surprise that somebody like Reef tries to verticalize uh, in this case, um, food industry, 
And that when they do that, they're bringing with it not just a new perspective on parking lots, but also a very different perspective on legal compliance, on risk, on capital, on returns uh, of capital, et cetera. And that enables them to do something that other people, like say architects, would consider, you know, not just distasteful, but like impossible. So um, if you asked an architect to design a corner restaurant uh, on Gratiot Avenue here in Detroit, they would be thinking about things like permanence, durability, ADA access, that type of stuff. When Reef launches their neighborhood kitchen on that site, um, they bring a trailer that has steps up to it that is not ADA accessible in the slightest, that doesn't really have much concern for the dignity of the people who work in that kitchen. I mean, imagine that you work in a kitchen and your toilet is a is a porta potty that's outside in a place like Detroit, right, where it's either sweltering in the summer or freezing in the winter. Um, not to mention the lovely sight of this accumulation of trailer, porta potty, septic, external above ground septic tank, water supply tank, various gas supply tanks, etc. That just kind of produces, um, you know, cruft uh, or, or junk on the corner there. And so it, it's been, you know, it kind of forced me to, to, I guess, grapple with the fact that, yeah, it, as you described, uh, it's a minimum viable building in a way, which kind of tells us that there's some perception of the process of making actual buildings uh, is too onerous. And so, you know, I can be from one perspective, very critical of what Reef are doing. And then I think it's also useful to be able to flip and use it as a lens on why did they go to such uh, great lengths to, to do this? Because it clearly isn't easy to assemble what they've done here either. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of a, a useful way as a, a, a diagnostic, perhaps, on um, the you know current regimes of permitting land use, et cetera, that then let us imagine perhaps a, a different way of approaching those issues that doesn't result in this kind of pile of junk that neighborhood did, but might address some of the same challenges in terms of seeking a greater speed or flexibility in how we occupy and utilize the built environment. Well, it, does, it also strikes me as an interesting use case for both your class and also in general. I mean, I, I, I've been speaking about it as of late. I'm back out uh, on the road again as the as the world opens up, regardless of what's actually happening with the with with the virus. Um, but yeah, I'm talking to real estate groups about this, and I love I love scaring them straight with dark kitchens, uh, with ghost kitchens and dark stores, in the sense of like, here's a group that basically considers you know real estate assets to be something to be routed around or or you know an attempt to to basically you know uh, you know yeah basically blow up the value of their stuff and doing so using a combination not just of the you know regulatory arbitrage, which is of course the point of doing it in in parking lots and not just the point of like, yeah, these sort of like, you know, interesting sort of quasi building assets. And I actually know some of the firms that have been consulted by Reef on this about thinking about like, they're the, the, the questions they're asking is not durability and dignity. It's basically like, how can we clad and reclad these? How can we reskin them as fast as possible to redeploy them? It's like hyper velocity of deployability of assets rather than that sort of permanence and, and importance of location. And then sort of like data services, like how do we identify pockets of stuff? It's right. It strikes me as like, Designing a more responsible version of that does strike me as an interesting sort of use case potentially for your class. We're thinking through like what are the implications of this, and and you know again I bring this up because we were very critical 
uh, of these of, of how they endanger local businesses, bodegas, etc. But but I'm curious. I mean, that, that's sort of what you touched upon a bit in in you know. Uh, in your project with Anthony, I believe. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and that's why I think it's it's too easy to look at something like the neighborhood kitchen and say this is a bad idea, right? And and similarly, I know everyone won't agree with this, but when I look at what was going on with Sidewalk Toronto, there are parts of that project that I seriously disagree with. But I also think that the questions here are not about can we put cameras on the street or can we put some pile of junk that acts like a kitchen on the street it's about what are the ways in which people start and maintain businesses grow businesses what are the ways in which people get their daily needs needs met um, and how do we make that stuff how do we bring that stuff into alignment with contemporary society so you know it's uh this particular example we're talking about is funded by very significant amounts of capital from SoftBank, and they're using part of that money to essentially buy the elasticity of the laws or the regulatory environment that they're looking for. Like they can pay for the lawyers to sort it out if they get a ticket or they get uh, something more serious. But you know, for every example like Reef that's backed by global capital, there's a small business here in Detroit that's also trying to figure out how to navigate getting a restaurant and getting the permits for it and all of those things. So uh, the, you know, rethinking the kind of risk model or risk assumptions that people have to buy into to start something new in a city is a source of, I think, still huge opportunity. And that's something that we worked on in Helsinki Design Lab around um, food entrepreneurship in particular, right, is like looking at why aren't there more restaurants by more diverse members of Helsinki society? And one of the things we realized is that that uh, ecosystem involves a lot of tacit information that's very hard for newcomers to make sense of. And it's very technocratic. So in the same way that you know prior generations of uh, digital commerce like really simplified how you buy things online, and now voila, lots of people buy things online. There's still tons of opportunities to think about that at the level of process uh, in a public sector context. And so, again, like I think a great opportunity for our students would be to think about, you know, how do we go back to the basics in terms of we want to protect people in the city from things that fall down or things that make claims that they can't live up to. Um, but we also want to support experimentation and innovation and trying new stuff. And are there other ways that we can uh, be aware of the risks that are involved when you're doing something like creating a new restaurant or a new building and find new or different ways to mitigate or at least um, think through those risks. And so that's a really abstract statement, but I, I think fundamentally that's kind of what we're seeing here um, with this neighborhood kitchen project or with kind of tech eating the city in general is it starts with a different perspective on what risks are tolerable and how we mitigate those risks. And doesn't this also seem like a really good design opportunity and a good teaching opportunity um, from all kinds of perspectives? You know, not only can we turn this this type of uh, deployment from what kind of looks like a, you know, a refugee camp into something that really looks designed and more importantly, functions like something that is designed and humane, um, you know, and also the fact that it's 
appearing on parking lots, which are some of the, you know, which are sadly the highest and best use of real estate in a lot of cities. And they're, they're taking advantage of that and to, to suggest that something other than parking could be on this corner in this location in the city. I mean, those both seem like extraordinary design opportunities, um, you know, to create something that's lightweight, disassemblable, uh, solar powered, you know, uh, prefabricated using uh, new materials, all those kinds of things. That's, it seems like the door could be very wide open if, if we don't just get baked into the model that, or into the perception that the only way to do this is the way that it's being done right now. Yes, I agree with that. Or I would say yes. And I mean, the irony of this particular project we're discussing is that it's in a city with plenty of vacant real estate, like vacant buildings or buildings that at least have uh, enough room for you to add something new, like a restaurant. So it, that's true. You know, this seems like an application of a model that was developed for cities that frankly have a, a much hotter economy than Detroit does. Uh, and it's being deployed here because that's how technology scales. You apply the same thing to many different contexts. And so I don't know that it's the best fit for Detroit, but I, I do agree with you, Dan, that there, there are lots of opportunities to rethink this as is. And there are also opportunities to use this, um, what I would describe as failed experiment as a way to say, well, okay, why did somebody experiment here in the first place? What were they trying to do? And what are the other ways that we could do that? Um, I think it's also, you know, it's also perhaps an opportunity to think about what are the new types of institutions or spaces that cities need. So if the 20th century idea was that every town should have a city hall and some libraries and some parks and some offices and some homes and probably some factories somewhere, um, are there other things that we need to add to that? So for instance, should cities all have some kind of infrastructure for very early stage economic experimentation, right? Which would be one way to describe what a small restaurant is. And is that something that you address through making smaller real estate, which is essentially how cities have done it to date. You know, you're starting out new with a bakery, you get the smallest footprint you can. Um, or are there other ways to think about supporting that kind of growth? And I think this is an example where, you know, people who are working at the scale of neighborhoods, districts, or smart city projects, you know, they kind of have an opportunity to think about what is the economic development trajectory. They tend not to think about what's the cultural development trajectory, but that's uh, equally, if not more important. And so I'm really excited then about how you think through those from the perspective of current cities, right, that aren't trying to rebuild themselves from scratch. But uh, what's the role of events and festivals in creating those early opportunities? And if you're successful at that ephemeral level, then can you graduate to something that's more permanent uh, and up from there? And how do you design that kind of pathway in, in an intentional manner so that cities have a kind of clearer um, feedback loop of of uh, learning through experimentation, which is something that happens for sure in every city in the world. But I think with the right policy and real estate and yes, probably also digital technology, you could do that in a much more concerted way, if that makes sense. 
That's interesting. Who would you point to as like the leaders in that one or inspirations for that? And obviously I'm thinking here of Renew Newcastle, which I wrote about for the New Republic back in 2015. And your former colleague, Dan Hill, I've mentioned that Dan's written at length about that too. And that's one, there's others in the UK and others. I'm, I'm curious, like who would you hold up for models of that or, or, or at least like, you know, leads and weak signals of places to pursue that? Yeah. I mean, I think Renew Newcastle is a great example. So they took short-term leases on a high street that was down on its luck and and brought in makers and small businesses um, and and basically created an urban regeneration uh, strategy that way. Uh, in the UK, there's Participatory City doing work in South London um, from less of an economic development perspective, but more about how do you get neighbors and community members utilizing the spaces of their neighborhood in a way that generates social value. Um, you know, Brickstarter, which you mentioned, Greg, was something where we were trying to ask, like, how could local government be more directly involved in supporting those kinds of initiatives? So I, I think it's something that's occurring in little bits and pieces um, in many different places. And I, I guess the question is, how do you get more of that and less of giant uh, VC fund supports company to plonk things on street corners all over the place. Well, it's, it's hard for, it's hard for cities to deal with this, particularly given the scale of the money and the sort of time. So I, I alluded to this, but now I'll mention it. The, the wall street journal wrote a piece on reef where they basically mentioned that reef in of the 4,500 parking lots that it bought in many cases, it bought like the wrong parking lots whose owners or managers would not actually allow them to deploy their infrastructure. So reef had to go out and basically lease entirely different parking lots than the ones that it bought, which is now has to just run as parking there. So, so basically they, they were given a billion dollars and just forced to buy as many parking lots as they possibly could, because that's what Masa Sun wanted to do with SoftBank. So just goes to show some of the, the time scales there. But um, it's also interesting, and this will be the, the segue to my, to my next uh, point of discussion here, is like, is that 10 years ago, I, I was fortunate to work with Jeannie Gang and Kate Worf and other great architects for a project for MoMA on rethinking like American suburbia. And what we arrived at was sort of what you described, like basically a sort of like new form of public infrastructure with, you know, maker facilities and kitchens and all, all the sort of stuff that, you know, today we would now describe as like a, you know, working class co-working, co-living space basically. But at the time we had no way of explaining what it was. And, and here's the segue. At about the same time, 10 years ago, you wrote this amazing essay, which I've has changed the entire way I thought about architecture. And Dan and I discussed it previously, which was your sort of notes on brute force architecture, the OMA models, I think of it in terms of don't try to find perfect form, just exhaust failure. And I bring this up because I mentioned your essay to both Jeannie and Kate, who are former OMA folks, and they were like, nah, that doesn't quite describe it, right? So I, I wanted to ask you, Brian, like, you know, what inspired that essay? And like, and have you tried that out on other members of OMA? Because it always struck me as intrinsically true, but no one ever really wanted to confirm, like, that's the way like <laughs> modern architecture practice works. Well, so my business partner at Dash Marshall, Richie Yao, uh, co-founder of the business, he was also OMA. And yeah, he quibbled with it also. He had disagreements for sure. Uh, so that post, as it says, I think in an editor's note at the beginning, it was written from a totally outside perspective, just observing friends who were part of the OMA ecosystem and then trying to understand what it meant and how that way of working came to be. And, you know, I think there's a, a confluence of some theoretical positions and then some uh, physical constraints that really 
uh, work together to enable slash require a, a, a labor system. And, you know, basically OMA uh, and Rimkul has famously wrote in both bigness and junk space uh, about the nature of contemporary architecture um, not needing to be as coherent as, say, a Frank Lloyd Wright building, where the plan of the building and the decorative motif of the light fixture and everything in between them are self-similar. Whereas in a large building, one floor can be completely different from the other, the outside can be completely different from the inside, the elevator can be completely different from the elevator lobby, et cetera. And if you're okay with that on a theoretical level, what that does is then set you up to say, well, team A can work on the facade and team B can work on the floor plan and team C can work on something else. And you don't have to worry as much about the coordination of those things as you would in an office like Frank Lloyd Wright's or Zaha Hadid's or other places that work in more of a you know, kind of total work of art, right? In the, in the Viennese style approach to things. So it's, it's then this uh, process that you see in architectural monographs, be it OMA or Herzog and Demeron or Big or kind of similar firms from uh, that generation, where there's always a triumphant photo of a table with a hundred, if not hundreds of models. And it's like, look at all these things that we didn't choose. So, I understand, of course, there's more nuance to the curation and it's not a completely random search like brute force would be, but the nature of the work um, does still to me in a firm like that seem to be about exploring lots of avenues until you choose the right one. And if labor for architecture firms were more expensive, I simply don't think that would be possible. Uh, so the, the essay is about the interconnection between those um, decisions about how you pursue the work and then how that relies on really a large supply of overeducated, underpaid architectural workers. Which is, brings us back again for dedicated listeners to our episode with Eva Hagberg, where we talked, of course, about the now squelched unionization efforts at Shop. Like, yes, the efforts to actually raise those prices of architectural labor, which might actually change uh, the formation of practices. Um, I don't know, Dan, I was say, we, we talked about this before, but like, did, does it, did Brian's essay ring true for you as true for you as it did for me or your, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think, I think we kind of asked about the, the, the OMA and children of OMA uh, phenomenon um, in, in, a, in a previous uh, broadcast where I, I was, I was asked to sort of relay my own experiences in the architecture world. And I, I, I have to say, I don't think I've experienced anything quite comparable to that either because the architecture office that I worked in for the, for the longest period of time was a pretty small, um, I wouldn't say boutique design firm because they did work on big projects, but you know, it was kind of, there was really one lead designer and then everyone else was kind of really charged with the execution. So it wasn't a case where it was like, we have to expend every possibility. We're gonna, we're gonna throw 15 interns at you know, making, making you know, versions of models to reject uh, until we find the ideal form. Um, it didn't really work that way. Uh, and then the opposite experience I had of that was at a, like a production design firm where it was like, well, <laughs> it seemed like nothing was rejected. We just duplicate, duplicate, duplicate until the owner runs out of money. Um, so that was a 
totally different model, but obviously more labor intensive. And both of them were pretty dependent on fairly cheap architectural labor. I will say that, 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 sir, that observation rings true for sure. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll link to the essay in the show notes for sure. But I say, the, thing, the thing I loved about your essay, Brian, is it reminds me, and like, I can't believe I'm about to quote George Gilder, but this is actually one of my favorite quotes ever, uh, is, is when he was writing about like the early cloud and like the, early, the mid-aughts. Uh, you know, he, he came up with this great phrase, that, like the, basically the most successful firms in any computing era, for sure, are those that conserve what is expensive and waste what is abundant. And, you know, in past eras of computing, that was, you know, processing power, memory, uh, bandwidth, et cetera. Um, but in like the cloud era, it was attention was what you wanted to conserve. And you would waste, you know, huge amounts of compute and energy to do that. And that's effectively what OMA did. It basically, it, it wasted what was abundant, which was its labor hours, to conserve the time and attention of the principals who could then globally rain make in, in, in a truly truly globalized era, which again goes back to like, you know, who's who's designed that for the Saudis and and you know, why are we only now seeing firms pull out of Russia and other Odis regimes? And so I don't know, that 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 strikes me as there. And so that's like what how does that paradigm change? Maybe it is. Maybe you simply have to make the labor more costly and so that you try to conserve the labor versus wasting it as abundant. But. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think plays into this is also the communication technology that that um, that OME in particular uh, really utilized in its formative period, right? So you talk to people who are at OME uh, in the earlier days and there's discussions of, or mentions of, yeah, I got the facts with REM's notes, which is, the way that he has liked to make notes on things. And so if you're of a different era, then you're not relying on faxes. You have a higher bandwidth form of communication. So whether that's PDFs or something beyond that, you know, you're, you're trading information in a, in a way that just allows for more opportunity for um, perhaps find a, a finer read of things or a more detailed read. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to, to me to see kind of what emerges as the next model. I mean, our practice at Dash Marshall, we don't work in this exhaust uh, failure kind of way. We try to pay our people better. We're a small firm, we do the best that we can. Um, but I, you know, I wanted to mention also, I, I think as much as there's a question of whether firms pay their employees appropriately, I think there's a bigger issue of whether the sector of architecture is valued appropriately within AEC. And, you know, fundamentally, the kinds of firms we've been talking about, they're doing what might be described as innovation work in another realm, right? But their fees are being compared to, you know, chock-a-block everyday architecture firms. Uh, and they're getting a premium above that, but they're not, they're, they're still within the realm of architectural fees. And so I think there's a, a kind of issue in the way that the, the business sector, I suppose, conceptualizes the value of architecture that keeps it quite limited because it's understood as providing uh, shelter still rather than innovating a new product or service, which of course it isn't because you're only going to build one of those buildings. But if you compare that to what has happened elsewhere in the design industry, you know, there were industrial designers that have now become innovation firms and the billable rate has really transformed as well. And so I'm kind of curious to see a continued transition in the architecture world. Um, and as I mentioned, when we were talking about the degree program, you know, there are firms that are starting to think about their capacity to help clients innovate and that that comes at a different 
price uh, and therefore you can pay your teams also better as well. Yeah, no, I would say there, I have a whole I have a whole other story that we don't have time for here about the time that I managed to confront a bunch of LA Star architects and basically argue they needed to be in the consulting business and have the features of consulting firms because they were basically being reduced to subcontractors by that. But uh, but that's a story for another day. We're, we're almost out of time, Brian, but I, I want to make sure to give time in exchange for having you on and having you plug things. In addition to the program, you've also got, I think, what is an amazing service called People Party, where you basically created your own form of architectural renderings to insert uh, you know, those ghostly folks who populate architectural renderings, but doing so in a way that is actually representative of local populations. So you know, you, you solve some of the sort of diversity uh, problems that, you know, that happen with those kinds of renderings full of affluent white yuppies that I see so often. Um, so can you talk a bit about People Party for a second and where people can find it and how the architects who are listening to this can use it? So People Party can be found at peopleparty.app. You can sign up there and you'll get an email later for the invitation to use it. And basically, we pull census data for a place and we use that census data to generate a population of scale figures for the image. And this is an example of where a little bit of software can erase a lot of labor hours that get uh, repeated again and again on project after project in office after office. Uh, but you know, software for the architectural world has been, um, let's say, unloved for quite some time. So you know, you have Autodesk uh, and a few other people who are making things, and they're trying to produce tools like AutoCAD that you know now have zillions of functions and can do probably everything, but at the expense of solving really small day-to-day -day issues. And so with People Party, we tried to take that perspective of what's the smallest thing that we could do uh, from the perspective of writing software that would really bring value through automation. And in this case, it was how do we use a data source like census data to make images that are more authentic to the place that they represent? So rather than starting with, um, you know, going and collecting the scale figures, we ask you two questions. Where is this image? Where's the image? And how many people does it need to feel like a party? And based on those two data points, we can generate a population of scale figures for you. Very cool. Well, I say, I think, I think we're out of time here, but again, I would encourage our listeners to go hang out there, uh, it's uh, not and not just not just people, Brian. I say I remember you once did rendering of like birds and things there too. So everything you need for a complete environment. But um, but yeah, I would encourage. We'll we'll leave a link to that in the show notes and make sure that people can find it as well. But but I think that's about all the time we have here. We're coming up against hard stops. We live we still live in Zoom world here. We're like you know even as this is being recorded, we're hitting the top of an hour, and I believe it's time to make the jump. Dan, any final closing comments? Well, you know, a, a thought occurred to me as you were mentioning the, um, you know, the the detritus that's left on the the photographed, the much photographed desks of the architects, the things we didn't choose. And I was thinking about what if we had the freedom to do that, you know, in larger urban context where we we see all kinds of options that that were uh, unchosen, you know, and and not not left with all these models of you know, just replicated capital, but, you know, we actually were allowed to experiment a lot more. I think that's almost sort of what you're getting at, isn't it? I, that's one of my driving interests is how do we increase the, the basis of choice in a democratic society, right? So like our markets have done that really well on the shelves of the grocery store, but when it comes to urban development or even policy, 
um, the kind of choice mechanisms that we have feel a little bit less developed. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for designers, including the ones that graduate from our program, to play an active role in bringing to life legitimate alternatives so that democratic society can make choices amongst them. Thanks. Thanks both. And thanks very much, Brian, for being uh, uh, available uh, and on the podcast today. Thank you. This has been a great conversation.